Welcome to Canthropod, the Cambridge Anthropology podcast. This is episode 17, an interview with Michael Puitt by Beth Turk. So hello, my name is Beth Turk and I'm a postdoctoral researcher here in the Department of Social Anthropology at the University of Cambridge. And I'm here with Michael Puitt, Professor of Chinese History and Anthropology at Harvard University. Um, he gave two talks this week here at Cambridge at the Center for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities on the subject of neoliberalism in China. His talk on Tuesday evening concerned the ways to use the past to challenge assumptions undergirding neoliberalism and suggested that China is an especially good place to do this. So Michael, I feel very fortunate to be able to steal a few minutes of your time for Camp the Pod today. Thanks very much for being here. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions about your, about your talk? Please about feel free to. Great. Um, so in your talk, you seem to be offering a strategy to question what you've called the current modernity sincerity movement we find ourselves in at this time in history, and to see what, in many ways, is very unnatural about neoliberalism. And part of the problem seems to be the chokehold of modernity narratives that, taken to their full expression, would erase any other vantage point from which to critique them. Um, but modernity narratives are absolutely rampant, infiltrating so many aspects of life. So in the talk, you offered historical examples of a few other sincerity movements throughout Chinese history. And so I'm wondering if the particulars of those examples can shed some light on how to navigate this one. Beautifully put. And let me just begin by underlining your points here. Uh, yes, I think one of the many dangers of modernity narratives is it results in the idea that all other ideas, all other practices that have ever existed are relegated to something we call the traditional world, and therefore, by definition, nothing we can learn from. And then even within what we like to call the modernity, the period of modernity, um, it's seen as consisting of different isms, you know, communism, mm -hmm. socialism, mm -hmm. fascism, each of which is seen as having failed. And the result is precisely as you mentioned that what we are currently living in, that we can use the catch-all term of neoliberalism to discuss, is the one and only way to live in this world. Mm -hmm. And so even if we're not terribly happy with it, there are no other alternatives. And yes, to get to the heart of the question, um, I very much agree. I think one of the many things we can learn by really interrogating what is going on right now in the world and certainly in China and in the past is to realize that our modernity narratives should not be um, convincing to us at all. Mm -hmm. I would like, even love to drop the term <laughs> um, modernity as a self-description of what's going on sure. and to realize that there have existed many times in history that are trying to do what we are trying to do with very dangerous implications. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there have been many other attempts and are right now to build alternate types of worlds. And all of this is are things that we should be thinking about, debating, mm -hmm, learning from, mm -hmm. working from. And the chilling aspect of the modernity narrative is that we cut all these off. Right, right, right. Well, that leads very well into, um, into my second question, which is, um, which is, so during the final portion of your talk, you sent out an urgent call to decolonize our educational systems so that younger generations are equipped to consider alternative ways of organizing the world. And you stressed the importance of self-criticism. And this, um, this really reminded me of the Nietzschean strange familiar yeah. dialectic, that examples which come from a different time or place can help shed light on the strangeness of circumstances that have become so routinized and normalized in our everyday life. Um, so you mentioned the need for a tension between market and political spheres. And the example you gave came from the 14th, 15th, and 16th century Eurasian continent in East Africa, specifically the economic system stemming from an elaborate system of temple networks um, and the state's effort to control them. 
And so my question is this, um, how would this translate to the change needed today? Not just within one state, because that's easily more easily imaginable, uh, but between and among them on a more global scale. So I guess to put this slightly differently, yeah. um, is you've offered an example of an economic order that involves multiple nation states. What was the relation like then, and what can we learn about international policy from this example? Mm, beautifully put. And uh, I agree. One of the dangers right now in, again, what we, we can use the catch-all term neoliberalism to describe is the basic idea that, and this is going to be putting it in strong terms, but I don't think in accurate terms. I'll use America as the, the example because we're in, in many sure. ways the ones that most epitomize this view. The idea is that social mobility should be attained through gaining wealth and the gain of wealth should give you immediate access to political power. So in the American example, I mean, if you gain wealth in the marketplace, that will gain you immediate access to political power. Mm -hmm. um, you can then influence dramatically the, the political world with that wealth. And this is seen as a good thing because people who are successful in the marketplace are seen as those who understand the market and therefore should be the ones who, who decide the political process, and they should be the ones who decide if there should be regulations and, if so, what kinds sure. for each market. They should be the ones who, through lobbying efforts, should be able to design um, how the, the marketplace is run. And so the idea, in short, is there should be as little division as humanly possible between economic mm -hmm. gain and political power, mm -hmm. between the economic sphere and the political sphere. Now, going back to the examples you mentioned, um, there are many political theories and many forms of political practice in which the explicit goal in Eurasian history was precisely to block this and to say, not that we should not have markets, but to realize markets are not natural. Mm -hmm. Markets are created by a political sphere. It takes strong states to build a marketplace, states that build laws, regulations. It decides what to define as actors within a marketplace. You know, are, are they individuals? Mm -hmm. Are they corporate? How are these defined? All of these are done by the political sphere. And then the goal of a lot of political theories and practices is to say, therefore, separate these. <laughs> and you want the political process to be as removed as humanly possible from the marketplace. You want access to political power explicitly blocked by those mm -hmm. who are successful in the market sure. that you're running. And that's what you should be aiming for. Now, to return to the practical part of the question, um, is this doable now? Absolutely. <laughs> um, and obviously, the way we would do it now would not be the same as it was done in various times sure. in Eurasian history. But what we would learn is, how do you make these breaks? And to return to the American example, um, could we, for example, start creating absolute breaks? So mm -hmm. instead of encouraging, for example, lobbying efforts that give people with tremendous amount of wealth immediate access to political power, could you, on the contrary, mm -hmm. start building institutional restraints that would prevent that and and make that actually impossible? Mm -hmm. And the answer is easily. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that, obviously, the reason it's sure. so difficult to do is because of the nature of the current political process. Right. But if you push against that and start creating those constraints, um, then you suddenly open up the political process to real debate about what type of a market should exist, how it should be rethought. Sure. You end the silly ideas that there's something natural about a marketplace and you accept that, no, no, we're constructing markets and we could choose to construct them differently. And suddenly a world of alternatives mm -hmm. begins to develop because then you can debate what types of societies do we want to live in? What kinds of economies do we mm -hmm. want to build? What kinds of social worlds do mm -hmm. we want to build? And that should all be part of a political process that in our current way of thinking has been almost completely decimated. 
That's great. Yeah, you laid that out so nicely in your talk on Tuesday, and I'm happy to hear that. Um, again, yes, it's a great point also that um, that this really goes down to the educational system as well, that the younger generations really really should should consider and learn very in-depth and very very um, up-close indigenous models of, of alternate ways of constructing a um, political, economic, social world that we live in. I, I agree yeah. completely. Yeah. I mean, a clear way to begin with this, exactly as you mentioned, is the educational sphere. Um, it, it, when one tries to think immediately, how do we change the world? There are a lot of things we can do um, and need to do immediately. But of course, another place to think is the educational mm -hmm. sphere. If we are educating the next generations of students to grow up aware of the complexity of different political theories mm -hmm. around the world, different indigenous theories about economies and social worlds and political worlds, and the just extraordinary amount of political mm -hmm. practices that we've studied, both ethnographically and historically, mm -hmm. if you're raising generations of students that know that, then the current feeling that there's no alternative to neoliberalism would be gone immediately because, of course, <laughs> students yeah. would grow up knowing, of course, there are alternatives, and they would actually grow up with the critical abilities to debate and see the implications of different ways of constructing the world. That's great. That's great. So uh, my next question. Um, so your talk began from the premise that uh, Xi Jinping claims to offer an alternative to neoliberalism, a new version of Confucianism. And this, on the surface, seems enticing, given the enormous structural inequality and environmental damage under a neoliberal world um, order um, that is uh, structured by economic strategies of classic liberalism, where elites uh, write themselves increasingly more power. Um, and I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about this, um, specifically on Xi Jinping's version of Marxist rhetoric, and to what extent you see this in conversation with the overall rise in forms of populism and to a certain extent nationalism in other parts of the world. It, yes. At one level, it's very similar. So we're seeing throughout the world now strong reactions against the neoliberal order. Um, as you mentioned, this is to a large extent driven by the fact that neoliberalism creates extraordinary divisions of wealth between a very, very tiny wealthy elite and a tremendous impoverishment of the rest of the world. Um, this is leading, oh, and, and the second one directly related is a tremendous degradation of the environment, which is having very quickly enormous repercussions mm -hmm. for much of humanity. And this is driving, finally, a, a pushback against neoliberalism, which has really been the dominant form of, of economic and political practice now for a few decades. And the pushback is taking the form often of very strong right-wing authoritarian populist movements. And to a certain extent, Xi Jinping clearly fits into that. So it's clearly an attempt to build a much, much stronger state, um, a state that is oftentimes extremely repressive, um, claiming to stand up against the growing wealth disparity, mm -hmm. claiming to stand up against the degree to which moneyed interests are controlling the state apparatus. And mm -hmm. part of Xi Jinping's argument is we're going to stamp out corruption, we're going to stop having the state apparatus controlled by moneyed interests, and we therefore will be the nation that can finally begin dealing with things like wealth disparity, environmental degradation, etc., because we'll be removed as a state from the control of the market, by being controlled by the marketplace. Um, so in that sense, it fits in very well. Now, as you mentioned, the twist, of course, that's happening in China is Xi Jinping is arguing this is building upon Confucianism and a claim that this is really building upon a traditional form of political theory. And 
I think part of why we need to train people to be critical about what's going on is we need people to see both the strengths of what is going on in China as well as the incredible dangers. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge debate going on about these terms in China that we need people to be able to understand and therefore engage with and understand what what active struggles are going on in China itself. And in this case, um, the definition of Confucianism becomes yet another ism, mm -hmm. where this a claim that Confucianism somehow represents um, an ideology in which the entire population should be accepting the authority of the state, and it's the state that will be helping build a harmonious society. Um, this is certainly a definition mm -hmm. of Confucian teachings. It is hardly the only one, sure. and certainly historically it's, it's hardly the most convincing mm -hmm. one, to put it mildly. And if we're going to start taking ideas, say, from Chinese political theory seriously from the, the past, mm -hmm. we should realize that's not the only possible way to interpret things. <laughs> and could you, for example, really think of, yes, building states that would not be controlled by the marketplace, but on the contrary could actively be working on the marketplace, mm -hmm. realizing that the state is largely constructing it, seriously asking questions about how to build a society in which humans could flourish, could political theories from the Chinese past, and not just Chinese, be taken seriously in, de in developing this? Absolutely, and by the exact same token, we need to be deeply suspicious of when a state, on the contrary, tries to take some of these ideas and build them into some kind of ism that would de facto end up supporting a highly repressive authoritarian state. So what is going on on the one hand is potentially very exciting, it's on the other hand extremely dangerous, mm -hmm. and people in China are engaged in a strong struggle on this, and we need to see what is going on so that we can hopefully help be engaged as well. Right, right. right. So uh, my final question um, stems from a curiosity. So I'm, I'm wondering about your evolution as an academic scholar. So in response to one of the questions on Tuesday, uh, you mentioned a need for a dual research strategy uh, for both small-scale contextualized and historicized research, but also for broader comparative and theoretical work. I'm wondering how your background in anthropology, and specifically within ritual studies, allows for your particular vantage point on contemporary China. I suppose this question could work in the other direction as well, in that how does your training as an anthropologist and um, rituals, uh, uh, focusing on ritual studies allow for a certain reading of Chinese history? So I'm wondering if you could comment a bit on um, being an anthropologist and doing the, the kind of work that you do. Yes, I find anthropology to be one of the single most exciting disciplines right now for precisely this reason. So to make a grand generalization, a lot of programs in the humanities are now focusing on very, very tight, particularized, historicized understandings of contexts. And so if you're reading a, a poem or a political theory or what have you, you're trying to put it in a very tight, particular context. Now, doing this is, of course, wonderful. It, it means we can see the complexities of the way that political theory is being understood, debated, employed, appropriated. So all the contextualization we can do is not only good, it's, it's mm -hmm. crucial and necessary and wonderful. But the danger of such an approach is that we then cut out our ability to ask the big questions that we used to be trying to do very strongly um, of saying, for example, okay, we now understand what's going on in, say, 1561 in, in this one province of China, but what can we learn from this in terms of larger questions about how humans construct a world? And 
I think we've gotten less good at asking those questions, but I think anthropology is an exception. I think anthropology is one of the few disciplines that teaches very, very tight contextualization of either an historical period or an ethnographic period, or ideally both. But then it's always going to be saying, and what can we learn from this? And how does this help us critique our own assumptions and allow us to rethink the world around us? And going back to the heart of the question, this is what I've learned from anthropology, to try to endlessly think of of our work as a dialectic between very intense contextualization and always then pulling back and asking the big questions of what we can learn from this. And that, I think, is one of the crucial things we can help educate the next generation in doing as well, to, again, help them realize Yes, there are alternatives in the world, and yes, particularized studies of particular cultures in a particular moment is part of that work we are doing to help realize we can construct different worlds than the ones we're living in, and there are real alternatives and real possibilities out there. That's wonderful and and very exciting. I just want to thank you uh, very much for um, spending some time with us here today, and uh, it was wonderful to meet you and be able to interview you. Thank you very much, Michael Pruitt. Oh, it's been such an (laughs) honor. Thank you so much for the wonderful questions. This has been such an exciting conversation.